Well, in the book of Jude, we've seen intense warnings so far. And last week, we looked at the woe of those who turn grace into licentiousness. And this week, we get the command to the faithful. So, obviously, this book is written to the faithful. He's talking about other people, and now he's a number of times throughout the book says, but you, essentially, you know, now, so given this, what? What should the faithful do? How should the faithful respond? And what he says, and where we're going to look in particular, is to remember what was spoken. Remember what was spoken. In particular, that all of this stuff that's happening was foretold ahead of time. So we're supposed to remember that this stuff was prophesied. The people coming in and turning grace into licentiousness, and licentiousness is just doing whatever you want, giving yourselves to sin and to ungodly lusts. So the command is, remember that this stuff was spoken beforehand. And we're going to look at why it was foretold and how it benefits us to remember it, which is the command, remember it. So please stand for the reading of God's word from Jude. We'll read the entire book. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels, who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men also, by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed." Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. 
These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, Following after their own lusts, they speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So verse 17 says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what was it that was said to them? In the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. Well, this is a quote from the book of Second Peter. There's a number of places where you could go and see similar things said. Probably the, the most direct is Second Peter 3, 3, which says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Second Peter is a book that's very similar to Jude. It's a very intense book, uh, warning against the same sorts of false uh, followers of God who are ungodly and who are going to be a temptation to the people of God who are giving themselves to the lusts of the flesh. And so the book is written saying, here's what is going to happen. Here's what to do about it. Here's how to respond Jude is basically the same kind of 
letter and it's just a little bit shorter. So what's the response to be? Assuming that we are not those who are turning grace into licentiousness, we are to remember what was spoken. We're to remember what Peter said. And then, he, of course, Jude repeats it. And we read, we read similar things in the letters that Paul writes, that in the last days men will be lovers of money, Lovers of themselves, haters, brutal, violent, despising authority, etc. Right? So it's the same sort of thing that Paul was warning about long before the book of 2 Peter or Jude was written. Why were these things helpful? For the people to hear. Why is it helpful for us to remember that these things were prophesied ahead of time? Even as Paul is establishing churches by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's writing letters saying, this is going to happen. This is what it's going to be like. False shepherds will come in. Why is that helpful? Why do we need to remember it? Well, the first reason we need to remember it is so that we won't be caught off guard and seduced by their lies. That's where we've spent some time the last few weeks trying to emphasize the necessity of recognizing these people the necessity of uh, fleeing from their errors, their theological errors and their errors in practice. In other words, they have, they have bad theology and it leads to bad action. But their theology is seductive. And that's why Jude makes a point of writing and saying, hey, remember, this is what's going to come, Right? So that we won't be caught off guard and so that we won't be, in particular, caught off guard and then taken along with them into error. What is so tempting about that error? Well, the the thing that's tempting about the error is that it's all about grace. That is the, the reason that there's such... A, is so, that it's so easy for us to fall into that same sort of error. Okay? It's all about grace. And so there are a lot of opportunities for us to hear somebody saying things that sound really good, talking about forgiveness, talking about grace, and yet for us still to be in danger because actually they are teaching and promoting a different gospel, a grace that leads to licentiousness. And so we need to be able to recognize these people. We see that the warning is 
In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. That's the one in Peter. Or remember the words, in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. But not just mocking, what else do these people do? You go back a couple of verses from verse 18 to verse 16, and what do you see there? How else do they speak to God's people? They mock and they... Anyone see it there? What about the speaking? What's, what, what, what sort of speech do they have? In verse 16, they speak arrogantly. That goes along with mocking, right? And what's the last thing? They flatter. Flatter people for the sake of gaining an advantage. So these are not just people who are over-the-top jerks, right? These are people who are also exactly combined with that perfectly making it makes it makes perfect sense given the theology given the given their philosophy given their goals all right but it's not like these people just look like monsters what ends up happening is that they they are also flatterers so the flattery is a different danger than the mockery right when people mock you, you can you can be um, you can be discouraged and think that what you're saying is stupid, and just hang your head and not speak up anymore, right? But what about when people flatter you? Is that how you're going to respond? Put your head down, tail between your legs, and stop talking? Is that the temptation when people flatter you? No, of course not. When people flatter us, what do we like to do? Talk more. And so they're flattering for the sake of gaining an advantage. But that flattery is just as dangerous as the mockery to us. Because when we like hearing people praising us, when we like receiving that flattery, then what we want to do is say the things that they want to hear so that they will keep praising us, right? So both of these have the ability of turning us away from the truth and into error, into the lies. So when mockery comes... <clears throat> We shouldn't be caught off guard and then think, oh, well, I must, I must really be saying the wrong thing or, or I must at least be saying it the wrong way because look at how people are responding. They're making fun of me and they're angry. And these are people who claim to be Christians, so I must have really done something wrong. Well, maybe you have, but maybe not. 
mockery is not a good a good test for yourself right because fools should be answered according to their folly sometimes the best thing to do with somebody who's spouting off foolishness is just to mock them on the other hand ungodly people will mock God's truth and those who are proclaiming it so just because you're receiving mockery doesn't tell you much without discerning what your message is what you've been speaking and whether it's God's truth or whether it's the doctrines of men and demons the flattery is another thing entirely When people flatter you, they are trying to use you. Always. Now, you have to be able to distinguish between praise and flattery, right? But flattery is always a danger and a temptation for us because we so like being praised. And so this is why it's necessary for us to remember that these people were prophesied beforehand. This is going to come. This is what it's going to be like. There's going to be mockers. They will flatter you in order to try to gain an advantage. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be dragged into their error and their lies. But the second reason that we need to remember what was spoken is so that we won't be shocked and dismayed at what happens. The first is the first reason is so that we don't get dragged in by being caught off guard. The second is being caught off guard and then being like, "Oh no, it's terrible. What's going on?" We grow discouraged. Many people allow the problems that are within the church turn them away from the church. When you hear people talk about hypocrisy and how they can't stand going to church anymore, what they're talking about is the problems in the church driving them away from the church. Right? And so... Here is a great response. This is something that I'm sure you've all heard before. Oh, I don't go to church anymore. There's so much hypocrisy. Or they were always fighting about money. That's just another word for there was hypocrisy. There were problems in the church. People were doing things that they weren't supposed to do in the church. How are you going to respond to that? Well, there's a lot of different ways to respond. But one way to respond is to say... Remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ saying, this is what's going to happen. This should not be dismaying to you. This should not be a cause for you to leave the church. This should not be a cause for you to 
turn away from God as though somehow his message has failed, somehow his gospel has failed. Somehow what he said would happen didn't happen. No, what he said would happen is what happened. What he said would happen is that there would be mockers. Here you go. Now, of course, you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, the, the goal of entering into these conversations with people is not so that um, you can convince them to go back into a church where mockers are never dealt with. Or where bad doctrine is being taught. You've got to be able to distinguish between those things, right? But it's never a good idea to lay out the hope for people that, oh, well, you know, if you just found a good church, then there wouldn't be mockers anymore. <laughs> no. Don't argue with Jesus. Don't argue with his apostles. Don't argue with his word. Remember what was said beforehand. Remember the prophecy that these things would happen, that there will be mockers, that there will be flatterers, that they will turn grace into licentiousness. And so don't be shocked and dismayed by that yourselves. And this is a great, a great way to practice not being shocked and dismayed is to talk to those who have been shocked and dismayed and explain to them why they shouldn't be shocked and discouraged and dismayed by these things happening. The third reason why we need to remember what was spoken is so that we'll be encouraged. How is this encouraging? How is it encouraging to remember this prophecy? In the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. So that's the prophecy, right? That's what the apostles said would happen, and that's what happened. Okay, so now when we, when we go back and we read it, okay, here's the prophecy. In the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. What's our, what's our inclination, generally? Oh, that's not what I wanted to hear. But why is it... Why do I say that we must remember it so that we will be encouraged? What's encouraging about that prophecy? Well, for starters, the thing that's encouraging about this prophecy is the thing that's encouraging about every prophecy, which is that they are true. And you see that it's true. And so what do we see? Well, we see that God's word is true always. And every time we look at a prophecy and we see it's true, what does that tell us? You know, God's word is true, though all men be proved liars. So when we see confirmation of a prophecy, that's strengthening us to believe God even if the prophecy is a sad one, right? And this is a sad prophecy. And seeing it fulfilled is sad. And yet it gives us strength knowing, okay, 
God said this would come, and it came. God spoke the truth once again. Not shocking, not surprising, not caught off guard by it when it happens. And not discouraged, but turning more and more our focus towards obedience and fulfilling that command of remembering and of holy living. Now, we can't forget that it is people who are inside the body of Christ that are the ones that are called out here as mockers, flatterers, turning grace into licentiousness. You understand, Jude, remember, this is, this is not just talking about people out there, it's talking about people within the church. And so, when people inside the body of Christ, when people inside the church become mockers, there are different ways that it can look. One way is that they become a mocker as they become atheists and leave the church. Have you seen this? Some of you have close friends that you've seen do this. Turn mocker. Claim there is no God and walk away from the church. On the other hand, there's also the kind of mocker that continues to claim to be a Christian, continues to claim to be faithful, stays in the church, but is attacking biblical teaching. And that's, the, that's a mocker still. Anyone who, is, anyone who is denying the truth of God's word is mocking God's truth. And it will come out as actual mocking at some point or another. Okay? And that mocking always goes together with what? What do we see in the verse? Ungodly lusts. Mocking doesn't happen on its own. Turning into a mocker is not just something that happens in your brain one day. Like, oh, I was, you know, yesterday I was a man of faith and now I'm a mocker. How did that happen? How depressing. No. Mocking goes along with giving ourselves to ungodly lusts. And what I want you to see as we remember this is that part of the danger of giving in to your lust is that you become a mocker. You become one of those who has turned away from God, who laughs at his commands, who turns grace into opportunity to sin, to go after your lusts more. 
what a twisted thing, right? When you, when, you, when you see in the book of Romans, Paul writing about grace, what, so should we sin more so that grace may abound? No, how, how twisted that is. By no means, right? It's exactly, exactly the opposite of what grace actually leads us to. Grace leads us to greater obedience, not to greater sin. And so when we flip grace on its head and make it leading us into greater sin, what a mockery of what God has given us. What a mockery of grace. We see the judgment of God on those people that are a warning to us that we read about in the book of Jude. Cain, who we read about this morning as well. The Israelites, Balaam, Korah. We see these warnings. But we also see that God forgave King David, right? So King David, adulterer, murderer, forgiven. Korah, rebellious, destroyed. Israelites, rebellious, destroyed. The temptation is to think, well, I can give myself to my ungodly lusts and just be forgiven. I'll just, I'll just be forgiven afterwards. I give myself to my lusts. I'll, I'll go after my heart's desire, my idolatry. I'll, I'll, I'll seek after ungodly lust, And then I won't be any the worse for the wear. I'll simply entrust myself to grace and be forgiven. That way of thinking is turning grace into licentiousness. Do you see that? When you decide that you are going to go ahead and go into sin and just seek forgiveness later, that is using grace as your excuse to go ahead and sin. So that decision right there, right at that moment, that is exactly what this whole book is warning against. That that way of thinking, that error, that turning grace into licentiousness. Now what's the danger? Well, often this goes unnoticed, but it's something terrible. When we feed our lusts, we feed our doubts. Okay, when, when you give yourself to seeking after ungodly lusts, you are turning away from God, you are not living by faith, and by that very fact, you are walking away from God. You are on the path of the mocker. Do you see how that works? And so, 
when we decide, well, I'll just go ahead and walk further into my sin and but I'll stop. I'll stop at some point and just come back and repent, right? I'll stop eventually when I get my little fix. Then I'll then I'll decide at what point I've had enough and I'll repent and I'll receive grace and forgiveness. Well, that is turning away from the Lord and giving ourselves to lust. It is a decision that God's word can't be trusted. It is a decision to live life in mockery of God's commands. When you're not living by faith, when you aren't when you aren't seeking to put your sin to death and instead are giving yourself to it, what I want you to remember is that that is turning grace into licentiousness. And it is what we see here with mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. And so you do not want to be the mocker. You do not want to be the one who is following after your own ungodly lusts and is destroyed in your pride. Today is a particularly beneficial time for us to look at these books, Jude and Second Peter, because in the culture, people have begun to openly mock the Bible, Christians, and God. And that <clears throat> wouldn't really have happened like it is today a few decades ago. It wasn't the same sort of attitude. Not to say that everything was great a few decades ago, but there wasn't the sort of open mockery of God's truth. But that's outside. And again, remember, most of this book is focusing on inside the church, this stuff coming out. And so <clears throat> even more inside the church, we have the sort of mockery being a danger to God's people and thinking that we can go down certain roads and not have it affect us. But going down those roads in and of itself is to make a mockery of God's word and to reject it. So remember how I was saying that <clears throat> some people become atheists and become mockers and leave the church. Other people stay within the church. Well, there's a large group of people that want to stay within the church and to bring feminism inside the church. All right? 
And inside that movement, what you see is flattery and mockery and ungodly lusts that power it. Okay? Just ungodly lusts. Maybe if I, I can go back and, and sum up what I was saying a minute ago about lusting and, and mocking, all right? Your ungodly lust is the engine that powers your mockery. And you cannot take fire into your lap and not be burned. You give yourself to the ungodly lust and you're, you've, you've turned on the engine of mockery. And so now let's look at this with let's look at this with feminism. What are the ungodly lusts that then power us that power the church towards it? It's like the the engine, the train engine. You you start it up and you're going after those lusts and it ends up producing flattery and mockery. There's these ideas that we have got to see as central to feminism if we're going to have a proper understanding and ability to avoid the sin. Because we are easily entangled in those same ungodly lusts while thinking that we're opposing the philosophy of demons that is feminism all right but so many christians so many of us here today don't have any concept that the ungodly lusts that give rise to that that give birth to that are within us already so our thinking needs to be changed the things that we desire need to be changed For women in particular, the idea that nothing can stand between me and my opportunities, nothing can stand between me and my desires, nothing can stand between me and my lifestyle that I want to live. All right? That's, the, that's, a, that's central to the lust that gives birth to feminism. And, and you see that this is why feminism, more than anything else, causes abortion in our nation. All right? And so we look out there and pretend like, oh, well, no, abortion doesn't happen in churches. Abortion happens out there in the culture. And we say, yeah, it's because they're so wicked that they just like murdering people. And I say, no, there's very few people in the world that just like murdering. What is the cause of the violence? Well, James says, you lust and do not have. Therefore, you kill each other. Therefore, you fight, right? 
Well, if we have the same attitude that really I should be able to live this lifestyle, I should be able to live in such a way that I have no worry, no fear that anything will get in the way, it doesn't matter if we commit ourselves to saying, well, abortion is wrong. I, we would never do that. I would never do that. If we're left living with our children saying, how come I can't just live the way I wanted to live? I have, I have gifts that I wanted to use. That was going to be fulfilling to me. And now you are in my way. This child, right? That ungodly lust, that desire that nothing should, should get between me and my opportunities, nothing should stand between me and my desires. You know, I wanted, I wanted today to be peaceful and quiet. I wanted to be able to read my Bible. These are such wonderful good things. How dare you get between me and what I wanted? That is, the, that is one of the central lusts at the heart of feminism. And just because we have children or we don't have abortions or what have you, doesn't mean that we are not giving ourselves to that same sort of lust. Or maybe we've simply turned our desires in such a way that our, des- our, our, um, our lifestyle and our opportunities and our desires are embodied in our children. You see that? You, immediately, how easy it is for us to see, oh, well, that's bad, and to flip and to make the idol of our desires our children and what our life will look like with our children. And then what happens? Well, you spend, you spend 20 years or more raising children to simply give you what you want. You're using them to make sure that nothing stands between having you and having what you want. Which is this perfect idealistic family life. And so everything gets built around making that happen. This is just the flip side of feminism. Do you see that? It's, if we've got the same ungodly lust at the heart, we will become mockers the same as them. The sin will take different twisted forms in our families. But it'll be the same. And this is just one of the reasons why it's appropriate for us to speak of all of us being guilty of the blood of abortion. If we don't speak against the God, we are perpetuating the lust that leads to death. If we're living in such a way that communicates to others, yes, nothing should stand between you and your desires. Nothing should, should get in the way of you having what you want. I just happen to want different things than you. What does that communicate? Or I have the ability of getting what I want without, without going all the way down to abortion. 
right? I have enough money that I can still live my lifestyle that I want, still have the pleasurable things in life that come from money without having an abortion because I make more money than you or my husband makes more money than you. That's what we end up communicating. All that does is continue the bloodlust of the nation. What about you men? Well, nothing can stand between me and my opportunities and my desires. Right? Isn't, isn't that a good summary of what it looks like for men too? And what does that end up looking like? Well, now we're not just talking about children, but we're talking about women being useful to us in whatever it is that our ungodly lusts desire. So again, let's look at the, let's look at the two sides. On the one hand, you have sexual immorality and pornography and violence against women and taking advantage of them, right? And on the flip side, what do you have? The man who's, desi- who's decided to get married and lives with his wife in such a way as to make sure that she and the children never get in the way of what he wants, that he's never caused any discomfort by the fact that he has wife and children. Do you see this? Remember, the, there, there's two ways of living your life and going after the same ungodly lusts. That's the point that I'm trying to drive home. So what does that do? What does it perpetuate? Well, what it does is it continues to objectify women and to push them to have to protect themselves. either direction that you go. The only way out of this conundrum is to live by faith instead of going after our ungodly lusts. That's the only way out. You can turn it around and around and around and around and, and, and go, go running after your ungodly lusts in different ways, in different cultures. You know, you, you, take, you take the, um, the example of a completely different culture than ours. Go to Southeast Asia. How similar is it? Well, it's a completely different culture, isn't it? And yet when people go seeking after their ungodly lusts in Southeast Asia, it may look different, 
but the end game is the same. And you may, it may look like this amazing thing in contrast to our culture. When you look at where our sins have blossomed and exploded into, into just this disastrous, mucky mess in our culture. And their culture doesn't have that. And you're like, wow, look. Pick a culture, you know, a culture that honors having children. And wow, look. Look at, they have children and it's beautiful and they don't have this nasty, mucky mess in their culture over here. But as they go after their ungodly lusts, what? Well, it's just the, the mess is over behind you. You're just looking the wrong direction right now. We can't have our church simply be a, a counterculture that is still seeking after its own ungodly lusts. Or the church will simply become a mockery of what God has called us to be. Pure and holy. Believing and living according to his laws and his commands. And so I don't, I don't want you to leave discouraged today, but I do want you to leave sober, seeing what faith requires. Faith means not being caught off guard and seduced. Faith means not being shocked or dismayed at these things. If you just take if you just take end time theology and you look at postmillennialists and premillennialists, both both groups have a tendency uh, to think in different ways about what's going on in our in our culture today, right? So postmillennialists often end up thinking that everything is going to get better as time goes on. And premillennialists and maybe amillennialists are pessimistic and think that everything's going to get worse. Generally, that's the, the summary of what, what you see. Neither of those positions require faith, actually, if you boil it down to that. There's a way of living by faith and holding to either of, either of those, okay? But neither of those summaries, you know, just thinking, oh, well, it's going to get better as time goes on, that doesn't require faith. Thinking that everything's going to get worse, that doesn't require faith. So what does this mean for us as we go out? Well, if you're a post-mill, you need to be able to maintain your conviction that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Because that's the conviction, you know, that, that post-millennialist champions. No, Christ's church will be victorious. The gates of hell will not prevail. We're going to see a great victory. So you need to, be, you need to maintain that position even as the church in our nation completely caves in. That requires faith. Am I saying that the church in our nation will completely cave in? No, I, I'm not prophesying. 
I'm simply saying that a post a post millennial understanding of the of the word and of the world does not require that every nation continues to get better and better and better under God within the church. To claim that is to deny God's word and to deny plain history. But premillennials need to be militant and believe that God is calling a people for himself and will preserve them, even if they see exactly what they expect, which is the church caving in and collapsing in America by and large. Right? Why am I talking about pre- and post-millennialism? Well, the reason is because in the last time there will be mockers. Well, the last time was going on when Jude was writing, right? But it's still today. In the last time, there will be mockers. This is inside the church. And so, regardless of what comes down the pike, living by faith means turning away from our own ungodly lusts and going forward as a church. Maybe you think everything is going to get worse in this nation. Fine, but God is calling out a people for himself just the same, and he will maintain a remnant. And it is our work of faith to be in that remnant, rather than to be led out into the mockery. Maybe you think that everything's going to get better in this nation. That there's going to be repentance. Fine. But it is our work to make sure that we are warning against the collapse that Jude warns against. We must live by faith. We must turn aside from our ungodly lusts. When we're given the command to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, part of it is answering the question, do I live according to my own ungodly lusts? Am I just a mocker? And then fleeing that with fear and trembling lest we be like Cain I almost just preached a sermon on Genesis 4 after we read that just think about Cain 